You're listening to the Story Centric Podcast. All right, welcome back to the Story Centric Podcast with me, your host, Andrew Buckley. This is the second part of the conversation with screenwriter and comedy writer, Mr. David Mish. If you want to learn a bit more about David, you can check out his website at davidmish.com. It details a lot of his history, has some great excerpts from his work, and shows just what a fun, amazing, talented writer he is. So be sure to check that out. On this episode, you'll hear David talk about his time working with Frank Oz and Jim Henson on The Muppets, when he worked on SNL for a guest spot and got really high and had to be talked down by Martin Short and how laughter is critical to life. But before we do that, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Diggs, the cutest cockapoo in the world. And here's my best friend, Russell. Woof! We don't know what Russell is exactly, but he's great. We love going to the dog park. My boy takes us because we have to wear a leash and not chase squirrels or run into the street. But he's not the boss of us. Right! We play with dogs who are not dogs. We talk on Zoom with each other after our boys and girls finish school. Then we meet at the DP. Eat snacks and have treats and chase balls and run and dig holes and- Whoa! You're right, TMI. In our third adventure, we learn to play with Jaxie, who's deaf. We have fun and you will too if you read Stupid Dog, Zoomies, and Say What? Coming out this fall by Mary Harris. Available on Amazon.com. Right! And without further ado, reintroducing Mr. David Mish. Do you have time for a couple more of those uh, uh, Muppet uh, ta- uh, anecdotes? Of course I do. Okay. Well, because it was a fun shoot. First of all, Frank Oz and I got along great. And uh, the only bad thing is he had me every- rewrite everything nine or ten times. It was really frustrating. But uh, it came out the way he wanted. And the way he wanted was not like the previous movie, which I really liked, uh, the British one, The Great Muppet Caper. Yeah. And that used a lot of great British actors. John Cleese was in it. And it was silly and goofy. And he said, no more silly and goofy for this one. We want heart. And I thought, you do know you're working with pieces of felt, but okay. Anyway, so we did, we couldn't do the goofy things I wanted to do. Um, and so I did a lot of rewriting, but he, uh, I got it the way he wanted and uh, it came out pretty good, I guess. Uh, but I sort of longed for what my original drafts were. In any case, um, where was I going with this? Oh, anyway, Frank and I got along great and he invited me to be there for every day of the shoot, which was wonderful. We shot in Manhattan, obviously. We shot in Central Park, a wonderful scene with Gregory Hines. And, you know, New York's weather is not predictable. They knew the Muppets were going to be there and the weather gods made it the most gorgeous day I've ever experienced. It was a perfect temperature, beautiful sky. And we shot uh, in Central Park with Hines and, of course, Frank Oz. Uh, playing Miss Piggy and Jim Henson as Kermit. And we were there for, I don't know, a couple hours. And when word got around, hundreds of people gathered. And they were very respectful staying on the outside. So I had a lot of time to watch the scene. And the thing that I noticed was Frank and Jim are both six feet, six two. And they were standing with their hands stretched over their their heads with these pieces of felt on their hands. And I looked at the eye lines of all the hundreds of people who were watching. No one was looking at them. They were looking at the piece, the the inanimate pieces of felt while these two hilarious guys and between takes, they would keep their hands up in the air and do lots of dirty stuff with Kermit (laughs) and this piggy. 
<laughs> and the audiences loved it, but they never looked at the people who were doing it. So I thought that is really uh, puppeteer magic. Okay, but admittedly, I mean, if you put up a lineup and tell me to recognize Frank Oz and Jim Henson, I probably oh, can't yeah, right. do it. But I can I can pick Kermit and Miss Piggy out of a lineup. No problem. Yeah, but in this case, there would no be there was I guess no they were, lineup. It's true. They were right there. <laughs> <laughs> you follow the line down from Miss Piggy, and you see Frank Oz. By the way, Frank told me that he gave up being an actor because he is <clears throat> tall and lanky and um, uh, and thin. And he walked into a uh, casting call one time for a commercial, and there were 50 tall, lanky, thin guys. And he said, this is not going to work out for me. Uh, so he went another way, and it worked out pretty well. Uh, so yeah. one other thing, the, the scene where Linda Lavin played the doctor was shot on the decommissioned second floor of a working hospital. But the second floor was not working. And uh, the main thing I remember about that is that there was no air conditioning because it was not a working floor. So on this day, New York's weather did not uh, cooperate. It was in the 90s with tremendous humidity. And Jim Henson was under a bed uh, playing Kermit with his hand stuck up through the bed into the puppet uh, and lying. He was just lying under the bed. And every time we broke, he would come out drenched as if he had just gone for a swim. Uh, and it was, you know, a long uh, three or four hours to shoot that short scene. And the one other thing I remember is that they did the after rehearsal, they did their first shot. <clears throat> and I was sitting by with a, a clipboard because I wanted to look professional of the script. And um, they shot the scene and they said, oh, we got to go again. And I said, why? And uh, they said, Mish is in it. And there was a, a painting in back of the bed where Kermit was lying. And I was clearly reflected with my clipboard making notes <laughs> about the script. And I thought that was a poor decision on their part, but other heads prevailed. That's a shame. Anyway, it was, uh, and the other thing, main thing I remember is at the end, uh, they got married, Kermit and Piggy get married, mm -hmm. and uh, they had the biggest collection of Muppeteers in history. They had, I think it was like 70 or 80 people. They had a raised stage so that the puppeteers could stand or at least crouch rather than be on the floor. So the stage was about six feet off the floor. And um, I would go under there and you would see, you know, 80 puppeteers with their hands stuck up through it. And uh, it was a wonderful effect. I mean, you really, I don't think anyone watching it thinks, oh yeah, there are 80 people doing it. I think it was 40 people because they had puppets on each hand, but uh, it was still, uh, I thought, pretty cool uh, visual and uh, a cool scene. Well, it's such a suspension of disbelief when you're watching puppets. Like it's, you're right. I mean, even no one looks at or even thinks about what goes on behind the scenes. The Labyrinth was always yeah. the one that always like struck me as I so bought in, especially as a kid and a teenager, into what was going on in that movie. I never really thought that there was, you know, tons of people with hands shoved into different things. Yeah. And like, it just doesn't, never even factors in. We're, we're easily deceived. <laughs> well, the reason is, and I go into this in my talk on comedy, it's the reason is dopamine. We get pleasure. We get little shots of dopamine whenever we laugh, whenever we're amused. And we like that. We're drug addicts ourselves. We we like dopamine. And the way to get it is to suspend disbelief. So we'll do that in a heartbeat if we think someone's going to make us laugh. Uh, talking about, uh, thinking about what the uh, puppeteers are going through, I also worked on Little Shop of Horrors. Frank asked me to come in and work on the ending there because we were going to do a big elaborate thing, which I believe on the 25th, uh, anniversary DVD, 
they include some footage from the unused shots that I had scripted, which was showing how the plant takes over the world and kills everyone. <laughs> but funny. Dark. And <laughs> so he had asked me to come in. Wait, where was I going with this? Oh, puppeteers. So his son, oh my God, I'm forgetting his name. Brian, Brian Hansen was in charge of the plant. So the plant was this little little bitty thing at the beginning, but it gets bigger and bigger until at yeah. the end, it's bigger than a human. And that's because there was a human inside, Brian, Brian Henson. And Brian had to move pretty quickly, given all the weight. that It was a very heavy thing. And he threw out his back. He was, uh, I think uh, he recovered, but I think he has a bad back for life because of his work in Little Shop of Horrors. So the sacrifices people make. <laughs> in the name of comedy and entertainment. Yeah. Uh, I mean... I really want to get into like talking about your opinions on comedy, but you've had such a cool career. Uh, Saturday Night Live, uh, it was a guest sketch that you wrote, right? Yeah, well, they had a program that year. It was 84, 85 of uh, guest writers uh, who would come in for a week or two. In my case, well, it was usually a week. I got two because my manager wanted this sketch, the funniest sketch he'd ever read, to be performed. Right. Uh, so he booked me and I got there and I come in and they're not in Studio 8H. It was an election year and they had to move to a different studio and it was a smaller studio. And my sketch included a horse. <laughs> so it didn't happen. No horse. And I did other things, but it, it was great fun. And it was very exciting to be in the SNL writer's room. I uh, one time after uh, we had done our work. Uh, some of us were just hanging around there and someone pulled out a joint. Now, I, even at that point, I had not smoked in like maybe 10 years, but I thought, my God, I'm in the writer's room in SNL. I got to take a, a toke. So I did. And there were four or five of us in the room and didn't seem to feel much. And when it came around to me again, I thought, okay, I'll do another because I do want to feel <laughs> something. I, I did another. And as, it going, as it's going around, someone said, what's in this stuff anyway? And someone said, Hawaiian hash oil. Uh, well, I don't know if people know the terminology now, but that's really concentrated drugs. <laughs> and I kind of went off my nut. I began audio hallucinating. I heard people saying things that they weren't saying. And I sort of staggered out of the room and Marty Short saw me and could tell I was in distress. And uh, I will be forever grateful. Took me, escorted me to the ele to the elevator and we went down and walked around uh uh, Rockefeller Center two or three times, and it's a long walk uh, on a chilly night until I finally came down and uh, recognized what reality was. And uh, anyways, that was a very sweet thing he did for a man in distress. Oh, man, I'd love to hear that from Martin Short's uh, point of view. <laughs> to hear what you were like in that state. But uh, that's, that's crazy. Uh, I mean, what else have we not mentioned of your, your starred career? <laughs> Well, there are a few other. One is, because uh, this is documented on the net, both on my website and some other people's, um, I did a uh, pilot for Jim uh, called, when I did it, it was called In TV, and then he ended up uh, adapting it into the Jim Henson Hour, which was shot in Canada, uh, which I never saw. I think I was a little bit pissed because mm -hmm. I got no credit on it. But it was originally his idea, so I'm not sure I deserved any credit. Anyway, the idea was that a, a guest star each week gets lost inside a giant cable TV system. And I wrote it for John Candy, and uh, we never uh, did it, but we did shoot some scenes from it. And that is available, I think, on the net. I don't know if it's called in TV there. Inner Tube. Oh, I think uh, Jim renamed it Inner Tube, which is a pretty good title. And uh, 
we shot about 15 minutes and it didn't go. That, that's all there is to it, but uh, I was proud of it. And uh, the full script is also available on my website, uh, if you care. Um, so, but that was great fun working with Jim. And I'll, I'll tell you one Jim Henson story, which is Jim, I think, considered himself a, an older, wildly richer hippie. Uh, but he still, as Robin did, he subscribed to the hippie ethos, uh, free love and not being an asshole. And for the most part, I think both of them achieved that. But there was an interesting thing about Jim, which was that he had tremendous respect for crafts, for people who were craftspeople, who worked hard at a specific thing and mastered it, meaning the grips, the people who carried the camera around, the people who laid the tracks for the the camera to roll on, the people who did the lighting and uh, rigged up the set, and even the caterers, everyone who worked hard, he really had respect for. Uh, so when I was putting the script for that show together, we worked hand in glove. I, and, and he asked me to be on the set, and every single shot, he said, I was at David, and whatever I said went. I was essentially in charge because he respected me as a craftsperson who was good at his job. The minute my job ended, he, he ignored me. He wasn't, you know, rude. It was like on to the next craftsperson. Now we're doing post-production, so it's editing people. And it was really jarring because I thought we were best buddies, but we weren't. <laughs> uh, but that's fine. I had a great experience with him, and uh, he treated everyone that way, which was not badly. It's not like he was rude to you. It's more that he just was moving on, and he was a busy man with many projects, and he wanted to give his attention to each one. But, uh, you know, it was strange. <laughs> it's almost like he respected the skill set and the craftsmanship more than he respected the person who was actually owning that. I don't think he disrespected the person. Oh, no. I don't think the person is particularly relevant to him. It was the person's skill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, but more importantly, I mean, you teach comedy. It's, you know, it's what you do the most of uh, these days. Uh, you've taught all over the place at this point. Uh, uh, let me just say, it, it's a... A minor distinction and yet it's major. You say I teach comedy and I don't. What I do is I teach about comedy. I even do comedy classes for professionals, for comedy people. And even then I don't teach comedy because I don't think you can make someone funny. I do think you can make someone funnier, but not funny. And what I do, I'm just fascinated by how things are put together, the inner workings of things, those behind the scenes features for movies, featurettes for movies. I devour them. I'm, I just, I'm so interested in seeing how something that came out brilliant got that way. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes it's by indirection, sometimes it's by sheer mistake, and sometimes it's by hard work of what's just plain there. Uh, but anyway, because of that, what I do about comedy is show how it's put together. And uh, so it's sort of a behind the scenes look at comedy. And I have a, a dozen different topics, uh, physical humor, uh, uh, comedy's relationship to religion. Uh, there's neuroscience. I had to learn a bit of that because I talk about dopamine and how the brain reacts to, to uh, funniness. Uh, all the, and the history of comedy, a whole bunch of different things. But the whole idea is to get behind it so that when you see it, you have more appreciation for it. Because I think, at least in the past, the feeling was that comedy was sort of silly and dumb and you fall down and you get a laugh. And I think it's infinitely more than that. I think it's at least as intricate and difficult and complex as drama. And I want people to know that. A testament to your ability to teach about comedy. I mean, I had the pleasure of sitting in on your How Comedy Works um, session that you did for 
rain dance yeah, in the UK. Yeah. And I like there's one, I mean, I love the entire thing and it's the most what I've had sitting in a master class for like a long, long time. And it was good. I mean, it was a two to three hour class and yeah. man, it didn't feel like it. But the point that stuck out to me, I mean, other than all the great lessons you had in there, um, I've never found the Marx Brothers funny. It never, oh. I know, I know. Hey, you don't find the Muppets funny. So let's, let's not. <laughs> well, no, I, I've come around on that. <laughs> okay, fair. Uh, but I, I just never did. And growing up in the UK, we did not get a lot of Marx Brothers either. So what I saw was kind of few and far between. We got a lot of Evan Costello. We got a lot of Laurel, Laurel and Hardy, those things. But Marx Brothers, for whatever, seems to be a very North American institution. So what I saw of it, I just, I couldn't get it. And when I moved to Canada and spoke to North Americans who were crazy for the Marx Rose. I'm like, I still, I still don't get it. But when you did one little snippet and it was showing um, the room scene where just more and more people keep coming into the room and- Night at the Opera. Yes. And your explanation of it. And after I was like, oh my goodness, that is such a genius scene. I yeah. totally get it now. So yeah. whatever you it's set out to do, you did because I, I absolutely can see the humor and then the, the hilarity behind that is so well put together. Let me just say the giving my comedy talks, um, that has been the greatest pleasure for me. That's what's really hooked me is having the reactions of people. So I'm playing the greatest comedy clips in history and I'm getting all the laughs. They're all dead or doing other <laughs> things. I get the laughs, but uh, it's so wonderful to see people like younger people reacting to who's on first, which they not only haven't heard of, they haven't heard of Abbott and Costello. So the thing hits them out of nowhere and it's like, what the, ah, that's hilarious. And I do that, that, you know, I play dozens of clips in every, um, excuse me, every talk. And uh, generally speaking, people react that way. Another one that I love is people's reactions to a scene from The Court Jester starring Danny Kaye. So Danny Kaye is barely known nowadays. It's true. The Court Jester was one of his biggest hits, the most expensive comedy ever made at the time. And it's brilliant. And there's one section generally known as the Chalice from the Palace. And um, people just, you know, who have never heard of Danny Kay or this movie are just astonished at how funny it is. And that's what I really love is showing people uh, how brilliant comedy can be. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll likely enjoy the twisted, warped, and hilarious written works of your host, Andrew Buckley. Dwelling primarily in the realms of urban and paranormal fantasy and writing with a humorous slant, despite being told on several occasions to, please stop doing that, Buckley's work is a delightful trip down the rabbit hole. His works include Death, the Devil, and the Goldfish, Stilt Skin, the Hair in All the Wrong Places series, and a short collection of horrible fairy tales. Reviews for Buckley's work include, the story, characters, and humor are so fun to read. I laughed so hard, I think I pulled something. Filled with quirky humor and classic British understatement, Buckley's work had me laughing out loud quite a few times, much to the dismay of others in the room. Find Buckley's titles on his website at www.andrewbuckleyauthor.com from Amazon and wherever books are sold. Everything from Monty Python to you know Airplane to the Marx Brothers to Abbott and Costello, like it's 
it's a range. It's a, it's a, I think I don't have my notepad with me, but I remember listening to it and I, I listed them all so I could go back and rewatch all the movies that you had. And it was lengthy. Like it was a lot. I have about 600 clips, all of them like a minute and a half, two minutes long, which is, I've discovered as long as an audience wants to watch a clip. That is true as well. <laughs> but anyway, it's, so there's been a lot of editing involved. That, uh, that scene you saw, the stateroom scene with uh, the crowded room scene, uh, tremendously edited. It's, it's about twice as long or more. Well, <laughs> so it, I'm editing the Marx Brothers. Oh, oh I can't. <laughs> seems like sacrilegious. But, uh, it, it does. I've committed sacrilege on so many things, including Python, including Life of Brian, which is sacrilege in itself. It's true. <laughs> it is. Well, that's, that's very meta. The sacrilegious and within sacrilegious. I don't know this. Like a fourth wall break in there somewhere? Well, actually, because that, that's a huge thing for the Pythons, especially for Please, who I think took the, the forefront on defending Python against charges of heresy. Yeah. And uh, he said, first of all, it's not heresy. But even if it is, it's not. It's sacrilege because heresy is, is taking God in vain. Sacrilege is taking religion in vain. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did. They were mocking religion, not God, certainly not Jesus, who is portrayed very briefly in the movie with great respect. And he's still defending it to this day. Like they're doing the yes. stage play, I think, of Life of Brian. And he's like, we're not taking anything out. Like it's all staying. <laughs> Wait, they're doing a stage play as opposed to the musical? Oh, I see. As, I, yeah, that was the Holy Grail. I did not hear that. How exciting. Yeah. I, wow. I, I, Double check, but I'm pretty sure that's that is happening. Because okay. he was he made he made news like two weeks ago talking about that. He was all over social media. Uh, he's known for sticking to his guns at this point. He's not. Oh well, no. Down. It's every point along the way he stuck to his guns. I bought every Python uh, ephemera imaginable, and one of them was um, a big book of the script of Life of Brian, which had a special section with different interesting things. And one of them was correspondence between Cleese and I think the Daily Mail. So the Daily Mail had covered a football or soccer match where Cleese was making a sort of guest star appearance. I don't think he played, but he was there. I think it was for charity or something. And the article about him was about this event was lighthearted. And it said Cleese was prancing and, and jumping around being very silly. And Cleese wrote them and said, I was not jumping around and being silly. I gave a little talk and, you know, it was, it was uh, for a charity event. I was not doing my comedy act and I would like you to print a retraction. And they ignored him. And so he wrote another letter and they ignored him. And then he kept writing letters. And they print all the letters. And he was saying, you are a newspaper. You are supposed to report facts, not make things up. You have made this up apologize and make it right and they eventually did but he would not let go he was a bulldog so he's always stuck to his guns (laughs) i think he's developed a reputation um so today's day and age today's comedy um i mean we touched on it briefly but i mean you've come up through this wonderful long career of influencing different comedic aspects of culture and now we live in a world where comedy is trying to apply it to story, to give it actual heart. It seems to be a lot trickier than it used to be. And more, even more so, taking comedic liberties seems to be you know, under sc- constant scrutiny. How on earth are storytellers meant to imbue that glorious sense of, com- of, of comedy in today's stories when they essentially seem to be handcuffed? Well... 
this is something that comes up a lot at different versions of this. And the way I address it is to point out that I get two questions after my talks all the time. One is, how can how can comedians expect to get away with anything, with cancel culture and everything? They're restricted from saying anything. And the second question I get is, how are comedians able to get away with this stuff? They say such horrible things. Well, you can't have it both ways. And the answer is, you can have it both ways because comedy is not a, a single thing. It exists in many forms and many venues. So you tune in any uh, stand-up special on Netflix or Max, and you're going to see people saying outrageous things. And then you look at a network sitcom, and they're not going to be as outrageous. Uh, you can do anything with comedy. The only problem is if it's not funny, you're going to get killed, sometimes literally. Uh, actually, you can get killed if it is funny, uh, especially overseas. But uh, comedy uh, addresses things in a unique way that some people find even more offensive and other people find a perfect way to address difficult topics. In one of my talks on satire, I play, uh, I give an example of cancer as being something that can be funny. The first one is the most uh, in your face, which is the comic Anthony Jeselnik doing a show for cancer patients. And they're not even cancer survivors because some of them are dying. They're cancer patients. And he, one of his jokes is, um, what's red and white and will be red, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, what's red and white and will be red in six months, your will. <laughs> and the audience laughs. It's hilarious. And the reason is so simple. Laughter is beneficial to health. Laughter is critical to life. Without joy, I mean, what are we living for? What is the point of life? I think it's very simple, joy. We want to be joyful. We want to be happy. And if there's something which, in exchange for a tiny suspension of disbelief, gives us huge jolts of dopamine, we leap for it. We want it. We like it. The second cancer thing is Tig Notaro, a pretty famous comedian now, who had a double yeah. mastectomy and lifted her shirt to show it in one of her first shows after getting the operation. And she said, I spent so many years talking about how small my chest is. And I got to thinking that maybe my boobs overheard me and thought, we're sick of this. Let's kill her. <laughs> and it's a hilarious, outrageous, transgressive joke. And people loved it and they loved her. Uh, so I think we have nothing to fear from comedy. Uh, I think that uh, people will continue doing it under these sometimes difficult circumstances and sometimes they'll get canceled quick story about that daniel tosh is a comedian he was in a club and he did a joke uh actually he he said in the his act anything can be funny and a woman yelled out rape jokes are never funny and he said wouldn't it be funny if that girl got raped by five guys right now her friend was recording it she put it on the internet the internet exploded tosh apologized and a great uh debate ensued. And Sarah Silverman, who I think is not only one of the funniest, her last special is brilliant, I highly recommend, but one of the smartest comedians and one of the most interesting, interested in ethics comedians. And ethics is another one of the things I talk about. I have a, a talk about comedy and morality. But in any case, she said, you know, that was an ad lib. It was a terrible ad lib. It was an ill-considered ad lib. But ad libs aren't really considered. You just do it. So he said that because he thought of it. He would, it was not part of his regular act. I'm sure he never was intending to say it again. He could hear the reaction in the club and knew he'd made a terrible mistake. But comedians have to make mistakes. Uh, the famous comedian T.S. Eliot said, 
you can't find out how far you can go until you go too far. And I think that's so true. And I think we have to give comedians a little bit of leeway and maybe be sometimes genuinely offensive, although what genuine means, I can't say. Everyone has their own line. There is no line to cross. There is everyone's individual line. But in any case, sometimes comedians are going to be offensive, and we have to accept that if we want to have comedy. Well, like you say, you have to be allowed to push those boundaries to learn even where those boundaries are, for one thing. I mean, yep. you don't know. Um, yep. and, it, and it's all personal. I mean, my my father passed away from cancer seven years ago. And for a while, I couldn't find cancer jokes funny because it was personal to me. But that doesn't yeah. mean it wasn't funny. It just was, it was hard for me to hear at that point. Now I don't, now I still find it hilarious. I came back around because, you know, time heals. But it's, yeah, comedy is a personal thing to a lot of people. And so it doesn't always work out. And it's also the... The difference between saying something and doing something. Comedians are making light of things by saying things. Uh, on uh, Ricky Gervais's last special, like he had the 20 minute section at the top of his act where he literally yeah. talked about the difference, right? And he said, you know, yeah. if I, I, I could, I could talk Another about. Another way of that is that sometimes people, I, I think he may have said this, that they confuse the subject of a joke with the object of a joke. The target, yeah, the subject and the target are two different things. And he said, you know, I always get made fun of. Or, or, um, canceled out for uh, talking about punching down. I said, I never punch down unless I'm beating up a handicapped midget. And then everybody laughed. And he's like, see, you all laughed at something horrible. Now, if I brought out a handicapped midget and started beating on that person, that would be different. It's the difference between saying and doing. And, you know, it's where that line exists in lots of people's, you know, moralistic standpoint, I suppose, that makes it funny or not funny. But it's, I find it Well, hilarious. I also talk about the beginning of comedy, which is a mythological character called Trickster. And the whole idea of Trickster was transgression. The whole idea Always. was upending the way things are supposed to be because it's funny. A little, I, I, this is a, a great example I read once, which is you're playing with your, your baby and you put a shoe on your head and the kid laughs because shoes don't go on heads. That's funny. You're transgressing the normal way of being things. And that's what comedians do. And transgression can sometimes be upsetting. So uh, per, Gervais's example is perfect. If Because what he does is he gives you an image in your head of him beating up a handicapped midget. That image is going to appear in your head no matter what. Mm -hmm. And if you're horrified and you say, oh my God, look what R R Ricky Gervais is doing. You're missing the point because he's not doing it. That's right. He's talking about doing it. I also show a clip from uh, There's Something About Mary where Ben Stiller is fighting off a, a dog that's trying to kill him. And uh, the dog leaps at him and he ducks this way and the, duck, the dog goes out the window. And the, uh, that's hilarious, but it's partially hilarious because it's a fake dog. You can see it's an inanimate object going through the air. <laughs> so it's, the movie is telling you we're imagining this happening. It's not actually happening. If you actually threw a dog out a window, that would be a bad thing. Didn't I'm going to go on record and say that right now. You know, that's a good statement for the for the podcast. I'll put that <laughs> right, right in the byline. <laughs> um, okay, so to cap this off, I mean, we've talked a lot about comedy. We talked a lot about, um, you know, comedy throughout the ages. What influences um, you today? Like, who are your biggest influences today? Who makes you laugh in, you know, kind of today's modern age? Well, those are different questions. I mean, Silverman yeah. makes me laugh. Many stand-ups make me laugh. Um, uh, and, you know, there have been some movies that I thought have been successful. I don't know why this sticks in my mind. It's not a huge movie, but Palm Beach, Adams, uh, not Adam Sandler, who I'm Sandberg. not always a fan of. What's that? Sandberg. 
Was yeah, Andy Samberg. Mm -hmm. uh, a really good movie, really good comedy movie. Uh, Christine, uh, Christina Milioti uh, is the uh, female lead, utterly hilarious. Anyway, there, there are funny comedy movies now, but they're not as frequent as I feel they used to be. And I'm really good friends with um, two guys, Jeff Reno and Ron Osborne, who did Moonlighting and The West Wing. But are really, Where They Live is comedy banter. Their favorite movie is His Girl Friday. It's one of my favorites as well. Rapid, funny banter, especially between men and women, especially sexually charged. And we don't get so many of those anymore. The last one I remember really hitting me was, uh, I thought Friends with Benefits was good, but mm -hmm. the one before that with uh, Emma Stone. ECA? Uh, uh, no, the, the Scarlet Letter one. That is it. It's uh, ECA. Oh, ECA. Yeah. Sorry. Mm. I couldn't hear you. Yeah. ECA. That's a great movie. People should see that. And uh, wonderful, great banter and, uh, and wit. And that brings up an interesting word, the W word. Um, I wrote my first Mork script. And Gary Marshall, who was the in charge of the whole thing, he may not be as well known now, but he was the king of comedy on TV. He had six sitcoms running simultaneously, of which I think four or five were in the top 10. And um, he called me into his office, and I'm going to do my really lame Gary Marshall impression. Mish, your script is funny. I said, thank you. He said, no. <laughs> we, oh, I'm sorry. He said, your, your script is witty. I said, thank you. And he said, no, we don't do wit. We do funny. What he wanted was people to react not with smiles, not with nodding appreciation, but with belly laughs that would allow him to buy another house. And it was a great lesson. And I changed my writing for Mork and Mindy. And uh, I was pretty successful. So uh, there are different kinds of comedy. And I like wit. And I don't think wit is... Uh, liked as much by the general public now, or at least they're not give, being given the chance to, to feel it. I think the greatest comedy achievement of the last 20 years or so is Fleabag. Uh, the first series oh, was yes. great. The second series was greater. How do you do greater? It's insane. It is such a magnificent achievement in every conceivable way. And of course, it's not a comedy. It's a dramedy. And this whole thing that started a number of years ago where comedies don't have to be relentlessly funny, I love relentlessly funny comedy, but I love Fleabag and I love all the dramedies that incorporate human heart and emotion and depth and complexity. Uh, and we have those now more than ever. So there aren't as many belly laugh things now, but there are a number of these really clever, really well-written, well-acted pieces of art that include a lot of comedy. And I am a great appreciator of that. That is amazing. David, I have kept you far too long, <laughs> more, more than I said I would. Uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your insights. Uh, it's your absolute delight to talk to you. Well, thank you. And that's the episode, folks. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with screenwriter Mr. David Mish. Next week, we're on to a new guest. Omari Newton will be joining us from Vancouver. Omari is the department head for acting at the Vancouver Film School. He's also a very talented actor and voice actor. Uh, most notably, recently, you probably heard him as the voice of Black Panther for a number of Marvel animated properties. So he's going to be great fun to talk to. Uh, so please join us next week. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share it around. See you next Tuesday.